Other People's Flowers is a podcast for stories, poetry, and essays. Thank you for listening. This week's work comes from Jonathan Ball. Jonathan is a freelance cartographer whose day job focuses on creating digital 3D landscape animations. Based in a picturesque seaside town in Scotland, Jonathan enjoys writing both prose and poetry. He also plays mandolin and haunts the local folk club. The Weaver's Daughter's Song In the corner of the bar by the little harbour of Kilwang, amid the jumble of decorative creels and oars, a voice called out, Sing us a ballad, Sandy. So Sandy Ross set down his beer and began. Now as I was a-walking down by the seashore, where the wind it did whistle and the waves they did roar, there I heard a fair maid make a terrible sound, like the wind and the waves that did echo around. The odour, still lingering in the vacant puffin burrows, skirmished against the scent of seaweed desiccating above the tide line. A chill autumn wind rummeled off the North Sea, up over the fiddlehead, that rock of Donator Castle. The ragged breeze made black streamers of Mahiri's hair. She let them fly free as she stared over the cliff's edge into the broiling waves that harassed the boulders below. High overhead, a turn chattered. Mary dragged her gaze skywards to watch the updraft above the fiddlehead toss the bird aloft. She sighed and let the restful waters reclaim her attention before inching forward on the slippery clay to the brink of the precipice. Mary's eyes picked out a timber spar, grey from long exposure to salt and sun. It lay broken-backed among the stones below. Was this driftwood just a tree trunk or the mast of a herring drifter, like Jack's own boat? Mary pressed her hand to her mouth. Mercy, a woman called from behind. Hey, lady, is that cliff safe? The twang of her accent sliced the air. Mary whirled round. A grey-haired couple gawped at her. The woman brazenly wore trousers. Her companion's floral shirt looked like a rich girl's summer frock. Their smiles were kindly, though. I'm hoping the waves will give Jack back to me again. Honey, the woman said. I just love the poetic way y'all speak. The folks will just eat you up back in Badan Rouge. The woman's husband nodded vigorously, his darkened spectacles wobbling on his nose. The woman tutted at him. We girls can't slip even a skinny word in sideways with my Howard around. He's a chatterbox. But seriously, a body has no business swimming in these frigid waters, excepting if they're a pawpoise. I doubt your jack is in the sea, dear. Then perhaps you saw him on the path up here, Mary said, but already her pulse was slowing. I'm awful sorry, sugar, but we don't know where your bow is at. We've not noticed another soul since the man in the admissions booth back yonder, the woman said and flapped her hand in the direction of the castle's gatehouse. A hollow feeling crept into Mary's belly. Perhaps I should give up, she said. The man touched his wife's arms and looked into her face with large puppy eyes. Gee, Harold's right. Why don't we seat your jack together? Then we'll have a meal back at our hotel. It would be peachy helping find your bow while you tell us your story. Me and Harold are suckers for romance and guidebooks don't give you an authentic experience. The woman said, shaking a glossy pamphlet. Mary gripped the woman's arm. Really? You would help a poor weaver's daughter? Who can never repay you? Ah... Uh, Sure, sugar. 
and dinner is our treat. Harold nodded, rubbing his belly. Call me Cynthia, the woman said. Say, I saw a sign for a bit of the castle called the Lion's Den. That sounds exciting. Perhaps Jack had a motion to wander that away. Mary pointed over the cliff, but the sea mews cry for lost sailors. Harold flicked his thumb inland and smiled. Cynthia rolled her eyes and nudged Mary. Harold says we should look for Jack this way, so that's what we'd better do. Each step from the cliff burned in Mary's heart, but the soft warmth of the strangers drew her with them as if she were drugged. How will we recognise your handsome man, Cynthia said, linking arms with Mary. Blushes warmed Mary's cheeks. Although he's not so tall as many, he has the strength of a bull. It's what saved him when his boat foundered on the rocks below. Harold. Didn't like the look of that headland tourist boat either, did you, dear? It was no pleasure craft, Mary said. He was skipper of a lugger, reaping the silver darlings. Harold turned down the corners of his mouth and spread his hands. Mary stared at the couple. He fished for the herring, of course. Harold nodded thoughtfully, then prodded the air with a forefinger. So Harold thinks Jack's probably down by the harbour, Cynthia said. Of course he isn't, Mary said, her brows knotting tighter. But Harold's eager smile was like a bomb. They really did not understand. He was neither kith nor kin to any skip around here and a sackernack besides. So no boat would share with him. He set his back to the sea, for my sake, anyway. Mary turned back to the cliffs. We're so close to the lion's den, it's worth a moment in case you're Jack's sightseeing here. Cynthia said hurriedly. Go on with your story. It was I who found him, Mary said, her pulse quickening. We'd had a great storm. The morning after, I went gathering sea coal. The consumption had already taken my mother and my father was that sick with it himself. He looked as if he was about to dance the shaking of the sheets. I had emptied the coal bunker, keeping him warm through the night. Cynthia halted. Gracious, sugar, but I must confess to a little confusion. Even in Europe, don't y'all get yourselves vaccinated? And if your daddy was ailing, he ought never to have been dancing. Mary cocked her head on one side. A laugh exploded from her. Your words sound as odd in my ears as mine seem to be for you, she said. Gulls scolded overhead. Mary watched them wheel under the clouds before chasing each other out to the sea. A lump swelled in her throat. Maybe they've found him, she said. Oh no, I don't think so, Cynthia said and grabbed her wrist. Mary gasped at the sudden touch. I didn't mean to startle you none, but bless me if your story wasn't getting mighty interesting. The strangers seemed to blur in Mary's vision, and she was once more picking her way across the pebbles and through the kelp on the beach. Stones clapped like the short ring of a cracked church bell as she kicked them aside. The last gasps of the gale tugged at her skirts and teased strands of hair from under her headscarf. The briny smell of the storm-washed beach was clean and cool after the sooty fog of the cottage. Something black glistened in the rock pool. Mary pounced on the nugget of coal, sending tiny green crabs scuttling. She dropped it in the wicker basket wedged on her hip. The willow-weave base showed between the coal chunks. The meagre hall would barely keep father warm an hour. Skewers screeched at herring gulls among the tumbled pile of rocks a little nearer the ebbing tide line. The birds restlessly circled a body like cows sizing up a fresh sheep carcass. Perhaps a seal had been dashed against the rocks in the storm, or maybe even a he-selkie had come ashore searching for a maiden. They'd swum away together from the stink of herring guts and the rattle of her father's lungs that now filled their cottage instead of the loom.
Mary smiled and skittered closer over the algae between the rock pools. Even a battered seal skin could be worth a few meals. She felt for the filleting knife that lived in the waistband of her dress. The birds screamed at her and danced about the body. One skewer darted in, pulling seaweed and hair away from a man's head. Mary gasped. Get away from him, you filthy boxies, she shouted. She dropped her basket and ran at the gulls. The birds swirled around her, a screeching maelstrom of brown and white wings. Long beaks lanced at her eyes, sticky feces spattered about her. Mary wiped off her apron and whirled it round, yelling at the birds until they fled in a tumbling cloud. She knelt by the body and rolled the man on his side. He groaned and coughed up water. Aye, well, sulkies can swim, so I suppose you're just a man after all. Come on, Mary said and sighed. My father's needing coal, and instead I'm bringing him a druchit loon. Mary pulled his arm up over his shoulder and hauled him to his feet. Her boots skated on the wet stones as they stumbled their way off the beach and up to the cliff path, leaving the basket to the gulls. The chill air scoured Mary's lungs, and her muscles burned as she hauled the man along. She stopped at the turn of the narrow path before it dropped down to the granite cottages that jostled around the little harbour. She draped the semi-conscious sailor over the dry stone dyke and stretched out her aching limbs. Below her, the spires of St. James and St. Mary's churches poked above the ragged flags of smoke from waking chimneys. Lord, Mary whispered, I've asked you for food and fuel every day since you took my ma, and now you've given me another cold body to feed. Couldn't I have just one wee miracle instead? The wind drilled icy fingers through her damp dress. The girls laughed at her from the beach. Vacant-eyed ewes cropped the grass beyond the dike, and the long grey horizon stretched away forever. Nothing, Mary said. Maybe tomorrow, then. She shrugged and kicked a stone over the edge of the cliff. She heaved the sailor back up and threaded the path down the brae until the cold shoulders of the cottaged gable-ends greeted her. The slap of halyards against the mass of bobbing fifis and Zulus sheltering behind the breakwater was her only applause. Mary leant the sailor against the door of her father's cottage. The man cracked open his eyes. So there's a wee bit of life coming back into you, Mary said. You can have some broth and a heaty up at our hearth, but we've little enough else. When you've revived, some boat will take you back up to the brock, though you'll need to wait for the morn's light when the fleet sails after the evening service. The man nodded. Mary guided him into the half-light of the cottage. The smell of smoke and damp enveloped her like a worn-out housecoat. Da, she called, I'm home. Already? Did the storm wash up anything? Only a shipwrecked loon. I said he can stay a night. Mary's father shook his head, then folded double coughing. At last he pulled a blood-stained rag from his lips. He stays as long as he will, but da, he's a gift from the Lord. A test. The old man pulled himself up on the mantelpiece. He urgently flapped his free hand at Mary. Sit him here in my chair. Mary levered the sailor into the seat by the thin fire. She curried an arm around her father. But all we have is already in the pot on the stove, she whispered. Why did you have to be the only weaver in a fishing town? Otherwise, we might have had charity from his shipmates when we grew too weak to work. And now him too. Mary's father squared his shoulders. I'd not have taken it. So why do we share our empty cupboards with a stranger? Mary said and wiped the tears from her eyes. Will you have me pass the time guessing where the starvation or the consumption will take you first? If your anchor holds, we'll be rewarded not measure for measure, but sevenfold. So bring him a pair of my trues and a gansey. 
one that's not through at the elbow's mind. Mary buried her face into her father's neck. The silent sob shook her shoulders as she clung to him. She felt his hand stroke her head. The book says who, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life. As for this loon you've plucked from that false god Neptune, well, show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Her father took Mary's head gently between his palms. His grey eyes gazed into her own, and he smiled. Fetch the axe from the sheddy, he said. Chop up your mother's wardrobe and build the fire high. But da, he's no angel. He's just a laddie daft enough to sail on a Friday. I can fit he is, but I choose to give my all when I have nothing left to give. A hand stroked Mary's shoulder. She looked up to see Cynthia and Harold staring at her dewy-eyed. Oh, sugar. Couldn't you have gotten help from social services? There was no succour from any quarter. But this sailor is surely your Jack, Cynthia said. So the story ends well? I couldn't bear to watch my ma's wardrobe burning, Mary continued, so I went up to the wild woods, digging for wild garlic, to pad out the broth. In spring you can smell it among the bluebells by the glass-law barn. There, in a bush overhanging the water, I found a ram caught by its horns, like Abraham himself did. It must have panicked in the storm and drowned. I knew then that Dar was right, and we never once while Jack was with us. By the time I dragged that beast home, Dar had fed Jack his own porridge. They were sitting at the loom, and Dar was showing him all the workings. He gained his strength quickly. When I would return from gutting the herring, I'd find Dar learning him on the loom. By his speech, we soon knew he wasn't from the Brock, as I'd first supposed, but from Yarmouth, Mary said and laughed. Jack was our couthy lad. Even our dour neighbours warmed to him, and coal would appear in our bunker, or we'd find a rabbit hanging by our door. I'd see him sometimes leaning on the harbour wall, watching the fleet, or lending a hand at reading the lines. But he never asked for a berth. Home. And I never suggested it. Mary felt her heart flutter. Each evening, when it grew too dark to work, Jack would tell us stories. The gloom of the cottage's front room crowded in on Mary, as though she were there once more. Jack pushed a chair closer to the fire and guided Mary's father into it. He pulled a cutty stool close to Mary. Do you sit back there and lend us your lugs? I'll tell you a yarn of black shuck. A hound too fierce even for hell, Jack said, filling a pipe. He tamped down the tobacco and lit it for Mary's father. That were one old year's night, and a slummocking mauler had to cross the heath to find herself a husband. What, Mary said and giggled down at Jack. She punched his massive shoulder. Speak English. The mother were girt on account of being slummocking, see, Jack said, his eyes shining in the candlelight as he grinned at Mary. Well, that had started to come on to rain, but she were only halfway across the heath, neither nearer home nor safely over, when Black Shuck caught scent of her and came a-lolloping through the gorse. Jack growled and made claws of his fingers. Mary squealed, laughing. She batted Jack's hands away. Mary's father pulled the pipe from his mouth and coughed. Now, Charles, you must forgive an old man. I'm away to bed. Don't waste too much wax on idle chatter, he said, and handed his pipe to Jack. Finish this, Becky. Helps a man think on things, he said, and gripped Jack's shoulder firmly, looking the younger man in the eye. Mary's father shuffled to the box bed set in the wall of the cottage's main room. He kicked off his boots, flopped onto the mattress, then pulled the screen door shut. Mary stared into the dwindling fire, listening to the faint pop of Jack's lips against the pipe stem. She pulled off her headscarf. Her hair tumbled about her shoulders. 
Your father asked me to stay to work the loom, Jack said eventually. Mary's grip tightened on the chair's arms. Will you? I'm a bit old for apprentice, and I miss the sea. Mary studied the wavering glow of the flames dying in the grate. And Yarmouth? Maybe, though most of my friends went down with my boat, and my family will have given me up by now, too. Jack pointed the pipe stem at the loom. I'll stay until this cloth is finished, but I know better than to use a mooring longer than the harbour master will allow. Mary stared down at the drowsy eyes of the embers, as they slowly closed and blinked open like a penitent, nodding through a long sermon. She twisted her hands in her lap. My dar has come alive again since he could borrow your strength at the loom. The weavers is a wearisome trade, I'll grant, but safer than the sea. Will you not swear even a year to us? Jack knocked out the pipe against the grate, never looking into Mary's eyes. Only one year, he said. Mary's pulse quickened. She hung her head so her hair covered her face and smiled. Or longer, she said softly. Mary felt Jack take her hands. She raised her head to see him kneeling beside her. I'll swear as many years as you want from me. Mary lent him close. I'll take all you have, she said, her lips brushing his with each word. Harold held Cynthia's hand, his eyes glistening. Cynthia sniffed loudly. That was too romantic. Show us the ring. Mary folded her hands behind her back and studied her boots. He lost all he owned when his boat went down, so he worked his passage on a fifer, heading for Yarmouth. He was just going to get his grandmother's ring and return to me. Two weeks was all it should have taken. Mary felt a lump rise in her throat and her eyelids burned. I don't think he's here, she said, and waved a hand around the ruins of the castle. Something flashed in Mary's eyes. Harold was pointing a tiny handheld camera at her, so small that he did not need a tripod or assistant to carry the plates. But Harold, that wasn't polite, frowning at her husband. Harold spread his hands. He raised his eyebrows and nodded sidelong at Mary. Of course, you clever man, we can show your picture round the town or up at the railway station. Perhaps somebody there has seen your bow. The cry of a lone gull echoed off the castle ruins. Mary sighed and turned back towards the cliff path. Dinner's at seven. We're buying the ship in, don't forget, Cynthia called after her. Come even if you don't find Jack, because he might be with us. She should be here soon, sugar, Cynthia said above the sound of the folk music session behind them. Let's show the barman that picture in case Mary or a beau have been here already. Cynthia jabbed her forefinger on the buttons of the camera and scrolled through the day's photograph. Where's the one of our new friend? Harold twirled his finger. Cynthia pressed the back button. There's only me on the edge of this picture. Well, ain't that a shame we didn't snap her. She was so pretty and dressed so quaint. My bridge club ladies would have tickled that some folks still looked like they just stepped off the Mayflower. I'm itching to tell them this story. Harold nodded, then swivelled in his seat to face the musicians gathered round a beer glass infested table. Shush a while. Let's listen, Cynthia said. They're authentic. The fiddler finished her solo break, and other singers harmonised with Sandy in the fourth verse. Then she flung her arms wide, and she took a great leap from the cliffs that were high to the billows so deep, saying, The rocks of the ocean shall be my deathbed, and the shrimps of the sea shall swim over my head. Everyone joined in the chorus, crying, Oh, my love is gone, he's the youth I adore, he's drowned, and I'll never see him no more. As the last words of constant lovers died, the bar door opened. A young, stocky man in a heavy home-knit jumper stood dripping on the threshold. Say, Harold, I do declare that young fellow must have fallen in the harbour. 
Thank you for listening to Other People's Flowers. Other People's Flowers is produced and edited by Hugo Gibson and Chris Kamonvutitam. If you enjoy the show, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating. If you'd like to have your work featured on the program, please visit otherpeoplesflowers.com to see our submission guideline. Thank you.